Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Chaye Sarah covers Genesis 23 and goes through chapter 25, verse 18. And we also saw the passages there in uh, 1 Kings chapter 1 and also in uh, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 23. Now, as we look at this particular passage, um, this in particular is a... uh, famous one by uh, Gustave Doré, and it's about the burial of Sarah. So it's an artist rendition of that burial in the cave. And, you know, as you see it today, it's talked about the cave of the patriarchs there in Machpelah. And uh, kind of modern-day <laughs> um, Hebron in, in the Holy Land. Now, One of the things that we look in this particular passage in chapter 23 of Genesis, we see that Avraham is putting down roots. He's putting down roots while he is mourning, finding a resting place for her. And this is something that we had talked about last year in the comparison of the resting place of where Avraham was going to buy, to purchase, to establish a resting place for Sarah. And then also, we compared that with the account of David going to purchase a resting place for the Lord, purchase the place that became where the temple stood in Yerushalayim, to purchase it from the inhabitants of the land at that particular time point. There was sorrow, and there was sorrow in both cases, but also a sorrow from those that died in a plague in the case of where David was purchasing the land. So then when we see in Genesis 23, in the first couple of verses, we see that Avraham is, is mourning for Sarah. But one of the things that we see in the midst of this is that Death does have its sting. We all see it all the time, that when we lose somebody who's close to us, we lose somebody because we remember them, and their memory goes on even after the person dies. But we're also not like those who mourn that do not have hope, as it's recorded there in 1 Corinthians 15 and also 1 Thessalonians 4. Something we'll get to here in just a a bit as well. Now, something that we also see is that Avraham is bargaining for the purchase price of this particular property. And you see that that's something to get a little window into ancient real estate transactions and ancient contracts where you have a high form of hospitality. You see a lot of bowing or showing respect between the parties. And one of the things that you're seeing there is a sense of showing respect for the person and what their asking price is. You know, you think of, oh, you're just going to continue to whittle it down. But no, you see that there, in this case, it's presented as being a, fair price, a fair price for this particular plot. And this particular plot was going to be a pivotal anchor for the people of God going forward. This was something that they had carved out, and it was carved out. They purchased it in the land. Then you could see they purchased not only that place, that anchor, where the grave of the patriarchs would be, but also purchase the place where the temple would be. And it's interesting, again, when you see that the fulfillment that came through in the modern state of Israel, that that was one thing that also caused some consternation 
amongst the people because starting back in the 17 1800s there was also buying of property again even though they were thrown out of the land that that was one of the things that the ottoman empire had started was private ownership of land i mean we we just think nothing of it oh you're just going to go and buy some land well that's not that's a anomaly in 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 history you know you think of in various cultures um you think in like an eastern culture a typical thing was everything belonged to the king everything and they just let you live there and you just hope that you didn't get the king mad because then you couldn't live there anymore and you were you were toast so that in various forms was the way it was across the world and you know you think of when people came here to the united states the pilgrims when the pilgrims came to the united states the idea of personal property that you would purchase property that to the tribes that they encountered was just considered strange but they said we want to actually purchase this property here we just don't want to sit on it we want to buy it from you so there was a little bit of a an education point where they had to say the whole concept of personal property something that was established and you see cemented in through the torah where you've got particular instructions about it you know there in deuteronomy 19 and deuteronomy 27 where it talks about boundary stones do not move boundary stones and cursed is the one who moves boundary stones now that's something that applies to real estate it also applies to personal boundaries as well you just don't go and impose yourself upon somebody else to move their boundary stones and impose yourself upon them respect people's you know we talk about respect boundaries today well that whole concept comes really from a biblical aspect of personal property of what is mine and what is theirs what is of your own what is from the other and that's something that's cemented throughout the word of god about the idea that was it the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof yes so thus you could say great it's mine well is it really the lord says i give this to you but respect it because you have to remember to whom the ultimate deed actually goes to you know you may have the the ground lease so to speak but the ultimate owner who is that and that's that's something that is extremely important uh yes larry you have a comment or a question over there when we think we own property says on it yeah we still have to pay property taxes on it yes and what happens if you don't pay the property taxes it's on not it? yours anymore it's not yours anymore so in other words you're almost renting it yes you're you're about yeah the government thinks it owns it yeah so yeah that's that's something that uh is very important to know because one of the things that is uh creeping up again now is the idea that other people can help themselves to what is not theirs you know and that we we think of that that's cemented into a couple of the commandments of the ten commandments you think of what they are don't covet and don't steal those are two of ones that were in there and also you could say by extrapolation it's also a part of another one and that is honor your father and your mother in other words don't move their boundary stones by just saying okay you know i'm going to take the honor that's due you and just claim it for myself that um i'm going to disown you so to speak yeah elder abuse yes indeed so you can see that also the yeshua the resting place of adonai made flesh as we see there in john chapter one also purchased rest for us 
precious rest for our souls with his tears and his blood and talks about that at length in Hebrews 3 and 4 and refs on it back in uh, Psalm 95 and Exodus chapter 17 as to where Hebrews 3 and 4 really move on. So, So just like we don't move heaven's boundary stones, the things that God creates into the earth, you don't move other people's boundary stones into the things that are carved out for an individual person's. So then when we get into Genesis 24, where it talks about finding a wife for Yitzhak or Isaac, we see that one of the things is that legacy matters, is that not, he's not going to get a wife from Canaan, and he's not going to get a wife from Haran or going all the way back into Mesopotamia, but it would be somewhere in between. It would be somewhere in between because remember we talked about on the last time around how there was a transition of Avraham from Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldeans, up through the Fertile Crescent and down into the other end of the Fertile Crescent in Canaan or the Promised Land. So that's where the family was in between. And so when he went to go visit his family, or Laban was, that was that place in between. He wasn't to go all the way back to Mesopotamia, and he wasn't to take the people from the land. He was to go to those that were somewhat separated from both of them. But an interesting thing, as we saw last time around, is that where is that area that his family had went kind of up near the border of modern-day Syria, modern-day Turkey. But it was still a part of the Het Empire or Hittite Empire. So you see when Avraham is doing these land deals with the sons of Het, that was from the Hittite Empire, which stretched all the way from modern-day Turkey down through the Holy Land. And they mixed it up with the Mitzrayim or Egypt quite a lot in the middle, in the Holy Land, and that went back and forth, as you see in historical records. And we even see in historical records how they, the Hittite Empire and the Egyptian Empire even uh, traded, you know, they did those marriage deals where they married their kids back and forth, the idea being you know, if we're related by marriage, we won't go attack each other because you won't go attack your relatives. It didn't always work out, but uh, that was the idea as a, a bit of good faith that you were having between the two. So one of the things that we see in this is about the care for the dead, is that with the idea of a grave, you are having a hope of resurrection. Now, of course, you say, if something happens like in today's plane crashes or a ship goes down or something like that, there is some conflagration and there is no more anybody to recover, then you know, you're talking about the creator of heaven and earth. For that to recreate somebody is not a big deal. Not a big deal. He created the heavens and the earth. Recreating a body, not, not a hard thing to do. But one of the things that you have with a respect for a physical body is that symbol of a hope that this body will be raised up again. You know, as you see recorded by in the book of Job, you know, you're not going to leave my body in Sheol, in the grave. You're not going to leave it in there to just become nothing. It will become something again. And you see that picture and that hope get brought forward in a number of prophecies. You think of like in Ezekiel 37 about the valley of dry bones, that being a not only a spiritual revival of the people, that they were just had gone to nothing, but they would then become something, that their bones would then come in in the flesh and everything would come back upon them. But 
they would also be raised physically. And some of the things that we see that just like Yeshua was raised from the dead, so also those who trust him. And some of those great passages that we have there from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 13 through 18, first off, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been risen. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So what you're seeing here is, number one, the hope of a resurrection and the hope of what God is going to do in the resurrection. And number two is that, like we're seeing as we go through in the Roman study, that the resurrection of Yeshua was not just something of convenience to have the Yeshua and the Messiah be alive again. It is actually something of a promise of what is going to happen and that we are also raised up with him in glory. That we are a part of actually a living people of God. Not just, not just uh, people who just associate and show up in a social club. No, this is more. We are connecting with the creator of heaven and earth in this. So, also we see in, continues on in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 32. Otherwise, what will those who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all, why are they then baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in you, which I have in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There we go. There's a passage there from the prophets in Isaiah 22 and 56. But you see also in this, and there are some folk that have taken this idea of baptizing for the dead and turned that into a, uh, a doctrinal uh, teaching, but really what it's referring to is a long practice, which was mentioned earlier, is that the Chavra Hadisha, or the, the, basically the holy society, those that will go in and care for the body. You have a, the, the society for women who die and the society for men who die, that go and they wash the body, prepare it for burial, etc., so a part of that, and that came the part of the custom, is that just like what you do when you are like with the priest going into the tabernacle, is you also mikvah yourself. So you mikvah yourself to go in and deal with the dead. So thus, why would anyone go through this whole rigmarole of the practices of cleansing yourself, preparing yourself, preparing the body, this and that and the other, if there's no hope that this person is ever going to be seen ever again? And they've just gone on to the great good night and they're going to be lost forever. There is no hope of a resurrection. But since there is, then there is great value in treating this dead body with great respect because. As Paul talks about it, that which was seen and sown in dishonor is what? Raised in honor. So you might think it's just an ignoble end that the body dies, you put it in the grave, it decomposes, oh, what a loss. No. The hope is, is that that's that thing that God has created, will, he will create again. Uh, yes, uh, Larry, we'll leave you hanging up there this whole time. Hold on just a moment. Yes. I've also heard that translated baptized 
for the purpose of being dead ones. Ah, and okay. that kind of makes sense in that whole thing too, because that's yeah. what we do, and we but we we re enter into his death and then are symbolically resurrected. Mm. But if if that was if he was never resurrected, then that wouldn't make any sense either. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's one translation that's been given to try to counteract that one teaching that people are used as they come around and tell you, hey, the Bible says this. Why is no one doing this? Baptizing uh, people for dead people uh, when it's really referring to a very ancient custom of high respect for those that have departed. So one of the things that we see in here and also this uh, passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Yeshua. Hallelujah. Yes, uh, and you got a comment or a question over there. Hold on just a moment. I just want to remember that my Aunt Angie and I and Lori Ann uh, A.G., we went and we did Kedusha for Aunt Angie when she passed. And we, we did an abbreviated one. But there is a process, and um, uh, Ellie A.G., inform me about it ahead of time i have i have the process and the procedure um available i'm not i'm not really sure but, but we do have a woman that lives down in texas who would be willing to come up here and perform that if if and when <laughs> we we <laughs> we don't want it we don't want to go yet lord mm -hmm. <laughs> but we do have the process yeah yeah, th thank you very much because that's that's one good thing to re remember because you know sometimes we treat things with uh, such disrespect because we almost in a sense buy into what the world is saying that there is no resurrection, there is no creator, so thus dust to dust and then you're gone and that's the end of it, but yet. You have a picture, and that's what you see with these caves, the cave of the matrix. You see in the tomb, the tomb that Yeshua was in briefly, those were all hope that there would be a resurrection, that just like Yeshua came out of the tomb, so then God would call everyone else out of the tomb as well. So one of the things we to head on here is to take a look at the section that we looked at in uh, one of our parallel passages today, and that was in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. And in a sense, you've got uh, several messianic prophecies that are going in through this and messianic uh, foreshadowings, one of which was, you know, where is he who was born king of the Jews? So you had these wise men, these magi or powerful ones that came in from the land of the east. Now, historically, we know that was the, likely the kingdom of Parthia at that particular time period. Now, if you have looked into any of the ancient history of the time, Rome and Parthia were <laughs> locked horns all the time. In fact, uh, Rome tried to push their border eastward and roll over Parthia as they'd done all over other parts of the empire, and they had their hat handed to them when they tried to take on Parthia. Parthia pushed back Rome. It was one of their, you could say, early um, losses. They would start seeing those more and more as the centuries rolled on. But Parthia was one, as they led, led up to the first century, that eh, they just could not push it any further. So when you have this delegation that came in, likely from Parthia, and you can imagine what kind of a stir that led and that brought up as you have this delegation of people. And they typically traveled with more than just 
Yeah, just we think of, it doesn't say that there are three wise men. It's often pictured that there are three magi because there are three gifts that were presented. But largely, it was, there's probably a good delegation of people, largely into the hundreds because of their productive detail that they traveled with as well. So you can imagine, I mean, just think of today. If we were to have several hundred people from China show up in Washington, D.C., you know, and a delegation, just think about what kind of a hubbub that would be of them just you know, coming in with regalia and everything like that. You know, in modern times, uh, we, under common diplomatic courtesy, have our delegations typically travel pretty light when they come in. Now, the United States is a little bit of an anomaly in that, is that when we go in, we go in with like several 747s and whole, um, uh, you could, I would say flotilla, but a whole convoys of cars, armored cars, etc., and advanced teams of the Secret Service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in other countries, when they come here, they don't tend to do that. Yeah, I guess one of those things is that when you think of comparative risk, the United States is comparatively not a risky place to visit for most countries when they come in. But in ancient times, when things were quite rough and you didn't know what you were going to expect, yeah, uh, they traveled. <laughs> they traveled with a good contingent, so they roll in with a number of people. That raises a lot of eyebrows, and especially when they come in asking, "Where is he who's born King of the Jews in the capital?" So that's like imagine trying to rolls into Washington D.C., not going to the White House, but just kind of going around town asking. Do you know who the leader of the United States is? Where is he? They're like, yeah, they got a house over there. White House. Go there. But no, they weren't going to the White House, so to speak, when these powerful ones were coming in looking for who was born king of the Jews. So you see, the, the backstory is that who was informing them centuries before at least four centuries before. Yeah, Prophet Daniel was leader of the Magi back there in the ancient empire. Uh, yes? Uh, it also goes to show that um, I guess there was some respect for the Hebrews because they had the one true God. And un most people kind of understood that, but... Being a Persian, you had your gods. Even though you kind of knew maybe he's the big guy, nothing you can do about it. You got your gods. They got theirs. So yeah. why would they care otherwise? Other than, you know what? The big guy's coming to town. We better go visit him. Yeah, well, you know, the Parthians were kind of a very interesting interesting group historically, you know, where you had the, the Roman pantheon, which was picked up from the Greek pantheon and altered it a bit. The Parthians, mm, slightly different. They were what they call Zoroastrian. So Zoroastrianism was uh, quite a bit different from the Roman and Greek pantheon. Yes. Yeah, it says in Psalm 72, the kings of Tarshish, the isles, shall bring presents to kings of Sheba and Seba. So that's where they probably got the three kings. Mm. Uh, there probably were three significant kings mm. and possibly many more that came with them. Yeah. But uh, possibly, Psalm 72 yeah. kind of names at least three of them. Okay. So another passage that is talked about here in Matthew chapter 2 about out of Egypt I have called my son, which is another Messianic prophecy. Another Messianic prophecy in here, a voice was heard in Ramah, and that goes on about talking about Rachel weeping for her children. And then the passage ends up with, and he shall be called a Nazarene. So let's take just a little bit of a look on this. So we talked a lot about the geopolitical things going in the background of, you know, you have Parthian contingent just rolling up into, into Jerusalem going, hey, 
where's the boss? And uh, the boss at the time going, uh, yeah, I'm the boss. Are you really? So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, as we had seen earlier, and we talked about earlier today about Abraham's blessing, is seeing that what we saw back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, about that promise that was to the woman, to Eve, that this seed from her would crush the head of the Nachash, of the serpent. But the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. So one of the things that we'd see is that this seed would come down, and then we saw in the flood that this was narrowing down through Shem, through one of Noah's sons, Shem. Now it's narrowing down again through Avram, that he would be the one who would bless the world. Through him would come a blessing for all nations. And in particular, there was, uh, we're going <clears> to <throat> get to it in just a few weeks, but about the prophecy of Yaakov for his sons, one of which in particular for the is Yaakov's blessing on Yehuda or Judah included this prophecy about Shiloh from Genesis 49 verses 10 through 12. And this is a portion of that in Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Yehuda, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So that what we see here is that this Shiloh who was coming, the one, this one would be coming from Yehuda. He would be a ruler or a king, and that he would gather the peoples to his rule. Now, coming from Yehuda, this is talking about the focus of the blessing of Avraham was now narrowing down through Yehuda. So you get it from Chava or Eve to Noah to Shem to Avraham to Yaakov. Now, actually, Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Yehuda, and now it's coming down through Yehuda. This is where this promise is working its way down of the seed of the woman, all the way down through that line. And that he would be a king. That after the exiles, though, there was no Davidic king. We're going back, we're coming up on the time of Hanukkah, and we relate the story of what was happening during that particular time period, the return of the exiles and the reestablishment of things. But then you had the Greeks roll in and blow up a lot of the, the reestablishment of the exiles in. But that king, that restoration of the Davidic line, did not happen, did not happen after the exiles. Those that came later, especially the Hasmoneans and those of the Maccabean revolt, and those weren't coming down through the line. So the rulers that you were having in there were both in the priesthood and rulers over Israel, that line was not there. So, uh-oh, what are you going to have with this particular promise? We saw a little bit of that that was happening in the passage we read today in 1 Kings chapter 1. It's kind of a sad situation when you see this. Here, Bathsheba is coming in to the king. She's who? The mother of whom? Solomon. And she's like having to remind the king, uh, yeah, it's supposed to go to Solomon. Yeah. But no, you had some usurpers that were coming in there that were trying to take it over. So one of the things that you would see also would be in 
the time of the coming of the Mashiach, it would be one who would be a king in the line of the Mashiach. That's the promise that we get with 2 Samuel chapter 7, that this line that would be coming down through Yehuda to David to Solomon, not to anybody else, not to Adoniah or Adonijah, not to him, but through Solomon, and then down from Solomon to lines of Judah. And it would be a, someone from the line of David who would be the Messiah. So thus, when you get to the first century, you've got a problem because there is no line of David who is a ruler. So you would have to have something sprout up. Well, we have something that was foretold by that several times in the book of Zechariah, talking about the branch, the root, the sprouts. We also see it in the prophet Yeshayahu or Isaiah. Those accounts in, in chapters 6 and 9 and 11 about the branch, the shoot from the stump of Yesi, David's father, that this would come up and this branch would grow. And it's something that we see also talked about in Isaiah chapter 53, that this branch would be seen as insignificant, something that would be considered of no real interest or no significant part of it. And then when we see, which brings us to our point here of this particular passage we're looking at, that this one that would be insignificant, quoting from this passage here in Micah chapter 5, that this would be one who would come and this seemingly insignificant city, Beit Lechem, would be one that would be substantial. And also, this branch would be seen as substantial. Now, what is the Hebrew word for branch? Natsar. What is seen as a word for little branch? Nazareth. What is the city where Yeshua is known to be from throughout the Gospels? Nazareth. So thus, when you see in the Gospels, and it's like you see again and again, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Basically, the name of the town is eh, insignificant twig. Yes, something significant would come. It would be that branch, the restoration of the Davidic line would be coming back in. So one of the things that you'll often see people will push back on a passage like Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, and say, well, Shiloh, well, Shiloh, and in fact, you'll even see in some English translations, uh, will say instead of Shiloh, they'll translate it as the one to whom it belongs, instead of just calling it Chilo. Because you'll see that in the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures has something that renders like that. But what you see is some a lot of witnesses very on early in uh, Jewish thought that this is not some sort of... Uh, Christian playing fast and loose with the messianic passages. Now, this is something that is seen as messianic from some of the earliest periods. Genesis 49, 2 Samuel 7, Daniel chapter 7 are referenced repeatedly through intertestamental writings, intertestamental Jewish writings, and early Jewish writings as messianic passages it's only when you get into after the middle ages where the momentum of using some of these messianic 
references starts becoming <laughs> caustic for synagogues where you start seeing the rabbinical commentators you'll see rashi and after him will start reinterpreting some of these passages but here's one that's uh, in the talmud in sanhedrin 98b where it references rav said the world was created only on david's account so shamul said on moshe's accounts rabbi yochanan said for the sake of the messiah so thus you're getting these these three rabbis takes so the first the rav or the kind of the key sage the world was created on david's account so this other rabbi says it was done on moses's account this other rabbi says for the sake of the messiah and what is his name or what is the messiah's name so the school of rabbi shila said his name is Shiloh, for as it is written, until Shiloh come. So very early on, you'll see that this Shiloh is seen as a title, not a translation or a place name, but it is a messianic title of it. Um, yes, uh, go, go ahead, please. I would like to just remind folks that Christ said, and he warned them teaching of the doctrines of the commandments of men. So those are just opinions. We must always stay in the word of God and not listen to what man's opinion is. Yep. But you always have to have an answer. So when they come in with an answer and they say, well, that's just uh, rewriting, you know, basically as was it, the history belongs to the victors. So because Christianity won out over Judaism, they just rewrote it and wrote the rewrote the messianic prophecies so what is your answer to that well go back and listen to your own earlier sages and they say yes this is a messianic passage and it always has been a messianic passage this is a modern rewriting of what was always considered to be a messianic passage so yes indeed the scriptures are always the deciding point but we have to have an answer for these things when people say you're you're trying to play fast and loose with the scriptures and there was even a medieval work that the uh Karyites did that was went through long long uh explanations of why the gospels and the apostolic writings were playing fast and loose with every time they quote from the tanakh or the hebrew scriptures so after that point, people then had to say, okay, well, they've made these accusations. Well, let's go back and dig it up. Were the apostles playing fast and loose with the Tanakh? So, yeah, you have to address those things because one of those things that you always have is that when people make accusations, you can just ignore them or you think the thing is that like they're in the garden the adversary came in and said, hey, did God really say? Or one way the other translate that is, even if God said this, does it matter? So those are two ways that you can just really poke holes into the things that God says is that, well, even if he did say it, does it matter? Or did he even say that at all? Maybe it was meant to be something else. And you see that a lot in modern uh modern scholarly research is that you'll have some that will be just picking holes in places of scripture because it doesn't fit with what modern sensitivity is so you'll other see other modern scholars that will say okay well they've made this accusation is the ancient way of viewing this correct and after going through a long analysis you'll see yeah but to definitely come up with an answer for it. But a very interesting passage that we are looking at here today comes from that voice in Rama, there in Matthew 2, verse 18. It actually is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Now, it's interesting when we take a look at, we'll close things out here with Jeremiah uh, 31, because it is what do we know of jeremiah 31 we almost quote this every single week 
What is it known for? Pop quiz. The new covenant. The new covenant prophecy. So if you ever memorize any verses whatsoever, that's a good one to memorize. Jeremiah 31, 31. That's easy to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is one of the new covenant prophecies that's in there. And this quotation that we have here about this voice coming out from Ramah of Rachel weeping for her children because they are no more is before you get to the new covenant prophecy. And in a sense, the new covenant prophecy is actually an answer to what this prophecy, this messianic prophecy is really about. So, one of the things, just take a look as we go into um, Jeremiah chapter 31. One of the things that we'll see here is that at, this, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the peoples of Israel, and they shall be my people. And then it goes on and talks about how, how Israel has fallen down and about this great call. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, declare in the coastlands far off. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Yaakov and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. So this is talking to people that, remember, this is before the exile. Yemeriyahu was writing before the exile. Because remember, Daniel is sitting there in exile, wondering how long it's going to last. And then it says it was coming to the point of where the 70 years that were foretold by Yemeriyahu were coming to an end. So thus, he knew, hey, this exile is going to end soon. So here, we're hearing it before it happens. And as it goes on, and, um, we pick up our particular passage there in verse 15. So actually, probably it'd be good to take a look here, uh, continue on verse 11 before we get to 15. For the Lord has ransomed Yaakov and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he. And they will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and new wine and oil, and over the young and the, of the flock and the herd. And their life will be like a watered garden, and they will never languish again. Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance and, and the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priest with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness. Now think of that. This it was before what the book of Lamentations is all about, which is the destruction of Yerushalayim and the temple. And so when you read the book of Lamentations, written by the same prophet, you hear, oh, this is the time of mourning. And it goes on and on about the mourning and the depth of despair that comes with losing you know, because when you were considering, this is the place where the Lord was put his name. David purchased that place for the place for the name. But then the walls knocked down, the buildings destroyed, the temple destroyed, the people hauled away. So thus we get to our verse here in 15. For thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her, for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be revealed, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children return to their territory. I've surely heard Ephraim grieving 
You have chastised me, and I was chastised like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. And so as it continues on. Now, Rachel, as we'll, lead, we'll learn and we go into our next Torah passages, the Toldots and onward. Who are Rachel's children again? Benjamin, Yosef. Okay. Who were Yosef's kids? Ephraim and Manasseh. Who were the main ringleaders of the northern tribes? Ephraim, Manasseh. So when you have the Assyrian exiles that happen, they were amongst those leaders of the ten tribes taken away. They are no more. So we call them the lost tribes because they largely had just been scattered. Now, the southern tribes, Yehuda, we, the, the whole idea of the Yehudim or the Jews comes in because Yehuda largely stuck together and some of the others that were bolted on, some of the remnant from Benjamin were there and they returned from exile. But the northern nations who, as we've read throughout time, were farther away from God, scattered out into the world. But this was something that was be calling them back, calling them back even though they were scattered, even though they were far off. And as you go on, as we lead up to our new covenant prophecy, we see that they are brought back. They are brought back. Uh, yes. What I, find, uh, what I find incredibly interesting is that uh, this war right now with Israel, absolute thousands from all over the world flew into Jerusalem and put a uniform on. Yeah. Suddenly I, the land became important again. Yes. I mean, just thousands of them. Flew. Yeah. It was just amazing that men and women, there was a, there was a, a group of, I think, 12 or 14 women went in and killed, like, I think they said 150 Hamas soldiers. I mean, they just went in and just annihilated yeah. a bunch of Hamas soldiers. Yeah. So, because that's, they, they said, never again. Yeah. And that's their land, and they went in, and they fought, they fought for their yeah. land. And they, and and they came from afar. Yeah, and that's one of the... The promises that we think of when we think of the blessing, bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Now, the big blessing that all the nations of the world be blessed, the Mashiach is the blessing for the entire world. Because thus, when you see talked about in Isaiah 45, was it, did I create Israel for, to become nothing? Because this prophet is writing in a time period where Israel is in exile. So it looked like Israel had come to nothing. And like when we see every time we go through the Torah passages and we get to those last chapters of Deuteronomy, and it said, okay, yes, you're going to be scattered into the wind because you didn't want to follow along with the Lord's instructions. But just so that the nations won't say, ha, he brought them in, but he couldn't save. Where is their God to avoid that? No, he's going to bring them back. And that's what you see in passages like Ezekiel 36, because it's not for your sake or your holiness that I'm about to act. It is for the reputation of what the Lord does and is doing in the world. So the promises for the blessings for all nations that would come through Abraham, through Yitzhak, through Yaakov, through Yehuda, through David, all the way down with the Mashiach, that that would actually come to something, not come to nothing. And as you see as this passage goes on before we get into the New Covenant prophecy, that this is a restoration of the people physically, but also spiritually, because you see and talked about there that they will be considered like a virgin people again. 
which is amazing because what is what you see the prophets talk about before the exiles? No, they were what with all the nations? Using the term harlotry because just like you have a spouse or your betrothed who cannot keep their eyes on you and is just wandering, your eyes wandering all over the place. So the people of God were with every other deity out there. They didn't have their eyes set only on their God. No, they were looking for all the other deities. Even Moloch, who was encouraging them to cast their own children into the fire for the sake of fertility. I mean, you think how counterintuitive that is. You want more children, so what do you do? You throw your children into the fire. Okay. But that is where you have with the realm and the kingdom of death. So thus, you bring the people back. You say, I'm restoring them, but how do you restore them? The new covenant prophecy. Behold, The days are coming, starting verse 31, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Yehuda, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Mitzrayim, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Hallelujah. So that is where you see the progression of the people of God, not only just physically back to the land, but also spiritually back to the land to be recovered, not only just to be present in a particular location, but also to be restored. That is what one of the great promises is that we have. And that is when you say the great blessing of Avraham through all the nations, this is it. To call them all in and say, hey, I will remember your iniquities no more. I will write my laws upon your hearts and on your minds I will write them. And... You won't have to guess and wonder who God is. You will all know me. Because that's one of the things we see the blessed missions of the Mashiach when he's telling his closest students, what is eternal life? To know you and to know the one who you have sent. Because he had said earlier to the apostle, Natanel, gift of God. What? If you have seen, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So one of the key missions of the Mashiach was to reveal the Father. So thus, what we are seeing the Father revealed throughout all of Scripture. There's not some new thing that just begins there at Matthew that hadn't been done earlier. This is all the revealing of God, starting from the garden all the way through. And that promise just keeps funneling through, down through different families until it gets through to finally the one who would come the seed of the woman, the Mashiach, to reveal the Father and not just give you head knowledge, but to change our hearts, our desires. Because why? We know who God is. We know what he wants. We know how he thinks. Because he's revealed that to us. And he's also giving us 
the Spirit, the calling, calls us into the kingdom and said, your past, that's before. So just like Sarai became Sarah, Avram became Avraham. That past that was before became different. And that past that was before remembered no more. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.